The Wonders of Heaven, Revelation 21. Let's finish this glorious chapter. We're going to be reading in just a moment verses 9 to the end. As you're moving that direction, think about the wonders of Jesus revealed in heaven. Through this passage, we will gaze together at the city of God. We will see crystal clear and radiating light the city that is truly the glory of God, breathtaking and beautiful, the place that God has prepared for those that love him. As we tour heaven, as we see the finale of God's word, as we see when eternity dawns upon immortal saints, when we arrive, all is new, all is perfect, all is pure, all is changeless, all shall be endless, and it all shall be ours at last. Heaven marks God's final goal, and as one of the great saints of yesteryear named Matthew Henry wrote, it's the place we've all been looking for. For his own funeral, that Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, said, Would you like to know where I am? I am at home in my father's house. I am in the mansion prepared for me here. I am where I want to be, no longer on the stormy sea. I'm in God's safe and quiet harbor. My sowing time is done and I am reaping. My joy is the time of harvest. Would you like to know how it is with me? I am made perfect in holiness. Grace has been swallowed up in glory. Would you like to know what I'm doing in heaven? I'm seeing God. No longer is through a glass darkly. I see him face to face. And I am gauged in the sweet enjoyment of my precious Redeemer. I'm singing hallelujahs to him who sits upon the throne, and I am constantly in praise to him. Would you like to know the blessed company I keep? It is better than the best of earth. Here are the holy angels and the spirits of just men made perfect, and I'm with my old acquaintances with whom I worked and those with whom I prayed. They have come here before me. And lastly, would you like to know how long I shall be here? It's the dawn that will never fade. And after millions and millions of ages, it will be as fresh as it is for me now. Therefore, weep not for me. I love reading that at funerals, but I love even more reading it as we study this glorious passage of God's Word. And it's not without reason that the early church often studied the book of Revelation. In fact, if you were to put together the sermons and reproduce the scriptures that were read by the Christian writers of the first three centuries that are still extant, you would find the entire book of Revelation preached from. Not so for any other book of the Bible. Interesting that those who were closest to Christ spoke most often from this book. It's because, and I want you to consider, that this book completes God's book. Revelation completes the whole Bible. In Genesis, God laid the foundations of his redeeming purpose. From Exodus to Jude, he built a superstructure, but in Revelation, he completes it and crowns it. In the Old Testament, we learn about the kingdom. In the Gospels, we learn about the Messiah. In the epistles, we learn about what is to be done in the church. But in the Revelation, we find them all completed. Revelation also completes Genesis the first and last books of the Bible present the most striking comparisons and contrasts. In Genesis, we have the first heaven and first earth. In Revelation, the last. In Genesis, the first rest. 
but in Revelation, the final rest. In Genesis, paradise has been lost, but in Revelation, paradise is regained. In Genesis, God makes husband and wife. In Revelation, the lamb and the bride. But in contrast, these two books are even more striking. In the first book, Satan is victorious, but in the last, he is crushed and defeated. In the first book, judgment is only pronounced, but in the last book, it's executed. In the first book, divine, the divine face must be hidden from sin, but in the last, we see his face forevermore. In the first book, God shuts the gates against us. In the last, the gates of heaven are never shut. In the first book, Adam and Eve were banished from the tree of life. In the last, all of us, his saints, have the right to his tree. In the first book, we were exiles from the earthly garden. But in the last book, we inherit the heavenly city. For it is truly sin that made the earth bad. Before the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, there was no death, no disease, no famine or war or natural catastrophe. There was no cancer, no weekly life, no rust or pollution, no hatred, no murder, never a rape, no lying, no corrupt government, no wife beating or child molesting, never any greed, and a thousand other ills that have plagued us for 6,000 years of history. Every broken body, every disturbed mind, Every hurting heart, the collective tears of the entire human race can trace their origin right back to the sin of Adam and Eve in that garden. And as a consequence of sin, we have polluted the oceans and raped the earth and poisoned the heavens, the very sphere which God committed to our authority. Is there any wonder then that as we look into these verses, the present heaven and the present earth are dissolved purged by fire, loosed from the consequences of sin. And thus we find no more twisted wrecks of cars, no more plane accidents, no more lifeless forms that have been shocked, poisoned, drowned, or suffocated, no more crippled bodies, the end of therapy and of throbbing pain, no more arthritis, insomnia, or bodily dysfunction, no more merciless onslaught of age and its accompanying pains and disintegration. For in heaven... We see the wonders of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 to the end, we find our wondrous Jesus. Let's read about him. And you listen as I share with you the wonders of Jesus. Starting in verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come. I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her light was like the most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. She had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and the twelve foundations on them were written the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. 
and the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. And then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopras, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each one individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illumined it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gate shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's bow together. O Father in heaven, why you would bestow upon us the honor of being able to go home to dwell with you forever. Why you would let your son redeem us and then go and prepare a place for us is beyond our wildest understanding or imagination. But as we look into your word, we pray that your spirit would lead us to comprehend the wonders of our Lord Jesus. Our wonderful Jesus who has prepared this place and every part of this place radiating your glory. May we see your glory. And may your glory, as the Apostle Paul says, transform us more and more into the image of him who our souls love, our Lord Jesus. So open our eyes. Let us behold wondrous things from the wonders of Jesus. In his precious name, we come to you, O Father. Amen. Heaven is brand new. First thing that is new is heaven. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21. The new heavens, and this does not necessitate the annihilation of the present heaven. It just means it will be a thorough, from the very bottom up, transformation. As you know, the laws of the conservation of matter means that matter is never created or destroyed in our world. That We know it's only transferred back and forth, and it's very possible God just transfers our matter of this universe to energy and then in a creative act puts it back like it was. All of that because in heaven there will be no sin left. Verse 1 also says the earth is new, and the earth will not be written off as a corrected failure of God's rule, but as an eternal triumph of his rule. There will be a sweeping transformation on the earth as well as in heaven, and there will be no sea any longer separating us. Verses 3 through 4, we saw this morning that the third new thing will be the new peoples. Israel will be one of them, as it says in Isaiah 66, 22, but all of the peoples on this new earth will be God's people. And verse 3 tells us that 
that is so, that all of us are God's people. Death and sorrow, crying and pain, verse 4 says, are gone. And the characteristic of all of the heavens and the earth, it says in 2 Peter 3.13, will be righteousness. The fourth new thing, first one is heaven, the second one is earth, the third one are the people. The fourth new thing is the new Jerusalem. Now, that's what we're going to see in detail. It's a literal city. It seems to be suspended above the planet during the millennium. Now, you say, what do you mean, seems to be? Well, once we get into eschatological things, future things, it, it is in the realm of the Bible that we should not be dogmatic. It should cause us to study more and more. We should be very forbearing because the greatest minds of all time have studied the future. And the more I read the commentaries, the less I see there is total agreement, and the more I see that there is wondrous diversity. And so it seems that this heavenly Jerusalem is suspended out in space during the millennium because we are with Christ, but yet the millennial saints see us and we get to come down to the earth, but we don't live on the earth. We are not with them working and, and marrying and given in marriage. We are celestial, but we seem to be able to come and go from heaven or the new Jerusalem. So that's why I say it seems to be suspended over the earth. It is not shaped like a pyramid, the city we're going to see, for the reason being that pyramids are always associated with pagans. God always associates with a cube. You say, why? Because it has three dimensions, length, breadth, and height. There is always a trinity in everything that God does. And so that's why I really think this is a, a beautiful crystal cube from the description that God gives. The inhabitants are clearly indicated with God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In this heavenly New Jerusalem will be the resurrected and glorified New Testament church who are seeking the coming city, as well as, as we've seen in our text, the resurrected and glorified Old Testament saints who were looking for a city, God would prepare them. And that's why we see, if you notice in verse 12, it says that the 12 tribes of the children of Israel are the 12 gates. And if you look in verse 14, the apostles are the foundations. And so there's an amazing, in this city, correlation between the new people of God through the foundations and the old people of God through the gates. Now, there's a lot of speculation on how high is the wall and how big are the gates. If you just read this without trying to make it like on our earth, it looks like the wall is as high as the city. The only measurement is 144 cubits in verse 17, which is 216 feet, which is probably how thick this wall is, and probably the wall reaches to the top. You say, what do you need walls for? I don't know. God put them there. Uh, but they look like, as it says here, jasper. Now, jasper to us, you know, is kind of a reddish stone. When I used to be in the Rockhound Society, it was kind of a reddish, opaque stone. But this was also the word used for diamonds. So it could very well be the outer wall is glistening like a many-faceted polished diamond. And it says that the light of heaven emanates out from the inside and just radiates outward through this wall. That's probably why it's there, it's to catch the light. And so if you are coming to heaven, maybe you went off to visit some distant place to see God's glory. When you're coming back, you'll just see like the largest diamond in the universe just spraying out light in every direction, which appears to be what it looks like. Nothing defiling is ever able to enter it. You say, wait a minute, is there anything defiling around? Yes. The last few verses of Isaiah tell us that we will be able to look down and to see the horrors of those who are in hell just in the distance. They're going to be down there, and so hell in the biblical sense, never ends, just like heaven never ends. And so we're going to be aware of God's wrath on them. 
and it's going to be out there, but they're never going to be able to leave that place of torment. Fifthly, the fifth new thing, and if you're tracking this, the new heavens are number one, the new earth is number two, the new peoples are number three, the new Jerusalem is number four. The fifth thing, look at verse 22 of chapter 21, and there are seven new things for those of you that keep track of this. The fifth new thing is the new temple. And what that means is that heaven is full of new worship. And I want to sketch this for you. The new temple of heaven, look what it says in verse 22. And I saw no temple. It's a new kind of temple. All of the universe becomes a place of worship. There is no longer a centralized worship. It's going to be that God is the focus of everything. He is not detached from us as people anymore. He is not the one that was promised. He is going to be with us. And so heaven is temple-less, church-less. We are going to be totally enraptured in worshiping him. Now, what are we going to worship? It's wonderful. Seven different things are mentioned in this chapter. Let me show you. Look at verse 9. In this new worship, verse 9 of chapter 21 says that we will worship Jesus the Lamb as our beloved. Look at verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. Now, the first time that these angels show up, it says one of the angels having one of the seven bowls. And this is the last time this is mentioned, and it's the seventh time it's said. So it seems to be that the seven angels that always face God, that are around his throne at all times, in the tribulation, each get to take a bowl of his wrath. And so the first one, and it says the first angel took the first bowl, and this says in this verse that the seventh angel who had the seventh bowl of his wrath, the seventh plague in verse 9, this is identified that there are seven different angels that always face God. These could be called the archangels. And this is the last one of the archangels. Maybe he's special. It doesn't name him. But this one says this, Come, I will show you the bride the Lamb's wife. So the emphasis there is we will be worshiping Jesus, the Lamb, as our beloved one. That's what Rutherford wrote in Emmanuel's Land. And, and I quoted it yesterday to our groom standing nervously and sweating. I said, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the glory of Emmanuel's land. That's what we do. We worship Jesus. He is our beloved. It's not the city that, that captivates us. It's not, see what God does is he turns everything on earth upside down. Gold we walk on, pearls which are valuable. The most valuable gem in the ancient world were pearls. That's why they dissolved them, as we saw a few weeks ago, and drank them in their wine to show their wealth. But God makes pearls massive. I've always wondered how big was the oyster that made those gates. You know, the pearl is that big. But but here, everything that we had value on earth, God just says, you can't value it because I don't want you to be caught on the glory of riches. I want you to focus on Jesus and worship Jesus, the Lamb, our beloved. Look at verse 14. We will also worship, and it says in verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles, what? Of the Lamb. Secondly, we worship Jesus, the Lamb, as our foundation. He is the one, as we saw this morning, who is the foundation of, of all of our hope, of eternity. And so we will worship Jesus, first of all, as our beloved. Secondly, we will worship Jesus, the Lamb, as our foundation. Look at verse 22, where we started this fifth new thing. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We will worship Jesus as our temple. He will be the focus. He will be the, the center of our worship. Now, you say, what are you underlining all this for? We're not in heaven yet. Well, there's a little 
principle. Anything that God is going to like in the future, he likes right now. Anything that God is going to do in the future, he would appreciate if we would get in step with it right now. That's why it's so interesting to read what God does in the millennium. You know, I hear all this talk about stuff. Did you know that when God can come back and set the rules again on earth and he's reigning with a rod of iron, have you ever read what he does? What he does is what he wants us to honor now. But Jesus, the Lamb, we will worship as our temple. Look at verse 23. The next facet of these seven facets of our worship. We worship the Lamb as our beloved. We worship him as our foundation. We worship him as our temple. Verse 23, we worship Jesus, the Lamb, as our light. He is the one who, who lights us. Uh, in fact, when the Apostle Paul gave his testimony, he says, this is salvation, Acts 26, 28, to open our eyes and to turn us from darkness to light. When Jesus was promised in, in Luke 178, it says, The day spring on, on high hath visited us who sit in the darkness. He's our light. And we worship him as our light. It says in verse 23, The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it. It doesn't mean there aren't going to be stars. There will be. It doesn't mean there won't be moons. There will be. But we don't need them anymore. We don't have dependence on them anymore because the end of verse 23, The glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And in heaven, this new worship is that we worship Jesus, the Lamb, as our light. And what a wonder that will be. Verse 27, we worship Jesus, the Lamb, as our guard or our guardian or our security. It says in verse 27, there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We worship him who guarded us, who secured us, who kept us. The Lamb is our guard. He is the one who writes in the Lamb's book of life. He is the one who keeps all who come to him from falling and, and presents them faultless before his presence. He is our guardian. He is our security. We worship Jesus, the Lamb. As our guardian. Then look at chapter 22, verse 1. We worship Jesus the Lamb as our spring of life. It's interesting, there aren't any longer any seas, any oceans, but there's going to be springing up water of life. You say, how come there aren't any oceans? Probably the same reason why there isn't any blood in heaven. You say, what? Yeah, Jesus said, flesh and, and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's interesting. And when he came in his resurrection body, he says, I have a body and bones. He didn't say anything about blood. Why? Blood has to do with, with corruption. It is the disinfecting system. It's the garbage, actually, system of our body. It carries out all of the dead cells, and it carries out all the poisons and filters it out of our body. Do you know what the oceans are for on our planet? It's a giant cleaning system. The rains come and they get all the impurities and they put them down into the rivers and streams and run them out into the oceans. And then only pure water is evaporated, as it were, distilled water, which goes up into the clouds, purified, comes back, cleans the air, cleans the ground, and flushes everything back into the septic tank of the planet, which are the oceans. God doesn't need oceans. We don't need blood. In fact, in a pure and, and glorified body, most likely there'll be a an absolute conversion purely of mass or matter to energy and back. And so you don't have any waste byproducts, which we can't conceive of because we're in a fallen universe. But the Lamb will be our spring of life. And look at verse 1. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. And that shows the purity of the water. It's no longer carrying trash out, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
Now, the Millennial Temple tells us it's coming out from underneath the altar, and that's a symbol of God's throne. But here, when the temple is done away with, it's coming out from underneath the throne. No longer is the altar a symbol of God's throne. It's coming actually out from under his throne, and it shows that from God comes true endless life through the water of life. The last thing that we worship, they were, we worship the Lamb as our beloved, verse 9, the Lamb as our foundation, verse 14 of 21, the Lamb as our temple in 22, the Lamb as our light in 23, the Lamb as our guardian in 27, the Lamb as our spring of life in 22.1. But look at verse 3. We worship Jesus the Lamb finally as our King. It says in verse 3, and there shall be no more curse. Remember God in Genesis cursed the earth and the universe because of the transgression of Adam as he followed Eve in her transgression. But it says there'll be no more curse. God removes it. It's destroyed. It's annihilated. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. He is our king to whom we worship by serving. I think of that uh, hymn, King of my life, I crown thee now, thine shall the glory be. What a wonder that we worship Jesus, the Lamb, as our King. Well, back to the new things in heaven. Look at verse 23 of chapter 21. I just went off on that new worship because that was a subset of the fifth new thing, which is a new temple, which is our new worship. But sixthly, look at verse 23. The sixth new thing in heaven is going to be the light that is going to be there. It's a different kind of light. It says in, in verse 23, the city has no need of the sun or the moon. We don't even understand. We don't even conceive of life apart from the sun. The reason the ancients used to worship the sun is that all life is sustained by the sun. All of our fossil fuels are a product of sunlight being captured through the wonders of photosynthesis and converted into the energy storage, into the plants and the trees. And then, of course, the fossil fuels are squashed plants and trees. And what we see here is that no longer are we dependent on the sun for the heat and the light and the energy it gives because the glory of God lights the city. The lamb becomes the lamp of the city. His light will illuminate the nations of the earth, and day will be supreme, and there will be no more darkness. And with darkness, no more fear, no more death, no more evil that's always associated with darkness. Gone will be eclipses. Remember what it said in James, with God, with whom in James 1, there's no variableness nor shadow of turning. Those are two astronomical terms. There is no eclipsing of God. In other words, there, there is no coming between him. No moon can cut off the light of, of the sun as in eclipses on the earth. With God, there is no eclipsing. And with God, there is no, not only eclipsing, but variation as, you know, the, the different stars pulsate. There, there are stars that, that differ in their light output and their electromagnetic radiation output. God says no longer are you going to have that variation. There's no burning out. There's no eclipsing. It's a new kind of light. And the seventh new thing, look at verse 1 of chapter 22, is the new garden of God, which is the new garden of Eden, the perfect one, the one that will never get defiled. And it says, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming out from the throne of God. Verse 2 of 22, In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, the tree of life on both sides of the river. Sounds like there's more than one of them, or maybe they're all connected. I don't know what it... Again, you know, we're getting into marvelous territory here, which we're going to look forward to understanding when we get there. 
The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. I thought there was no sickness. Well, so it, well, there is no sickness, so it's not healing from sickness. It's perhaps sustenance, kind of like the Lord's table, is to show us that we constantly feed on Christ, whatever the, the metaphor. Uh, we're not sure right here whether or not we're blurring into spiritual pictures or whether it's literal. It's literal, but, but whether it's literal as we conceive it, we don't know. I mean, there's a tree of life. It's a real tree, and it has fruit. But what the, the leaves heal the nations mean, we don't fully understand. And there'll be no more curse. That's the new paradise. The throne of God will be there. Uh, we'll see his face, verse 4, and there's no night there. So the new paradise of God is, is a place where the river of water of life is there, the tree of life is there, curses are gone, and we, verse 5, will reign forever. Well, if I was to summarize these seven elements into just a, a quick synopsis, it would be this. We have here a complete picture. Heaven is a place with no human frailty. And though we are still frail and human and can just barely start to comprehend this, we're getting a hint of how glorious it is. Everything in every respect in heaven will be new. Now, let me share with you what I mean in five ways. On us will be a new name. It says in Revelation 2.17 that those who are in heaven will have a new name which no one knows except him who receives it. So on us, he writes, and you see that, the new name, verse 4 of chapter 22, his name will be on their foreheads. We have a new name he gives us, plus we have his new name on our foreheads, on us. In us, it says in Revelation 5.9, we'll have a new song. And that's what's so exciting. People who are saved speak to themselves in, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They're singing and making melodies to the Lord because of the fullness of the Spirit. And so on us will be God's new name. In us will be God's new song. And we will be singing as the redeemed of God. We'll be singing, it says in Revelation 5, 9, of his blood that redeemed us out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation around us. What's going to be around us? A new Jerusalem. It says in Revelation 3.12 that we become pillars in the temple of our God. We will go out no more. We have the new name written on us, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. I will write on him my new name. So Jesus said on us, he's written a new name. In us is his new song. Around us is his new Jerusalem. Over us, Revelation 21.1 says, is the new heavens. And so the new heavens no longer decaying, no longer exploding in, into oblivion as the stars decay. Over us will be a new heaven. Under us will be a new earth. The new earth, because the first heaven and first earth had passed away. But the marvel is this, and I love this. Before us will always be the new revelations of the never-ending love of God. It says in Revelation 3.12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will go out no more. I'll write on him the name of my God, the name of my city, and I will write on him my new name. And there seems to be implied there that there is a never-ending discovery of God. We will be observing him like a pillar in his temple. Again, that's metaphoric. We're not going to be turned to stone or like Lot's wife was, frozen into a pillar. It means that we're going to be stable and we're always going to be there witnessing his glory. He is the temple. We are pillars. It's almost like we will be ever in God's presence adoring and wondering 
and absolutely worshiping him. So on us his name, in us his song, around us his new Jerusalem, over us the new heavens, under us the new earth, and before us the continuing new revelation of God. Well, I want to go through, starting in verse 16, the wonders of what heaven is going to look like and how beautiful it is, because it radiates all the superlatives we could think of. In fact, uh, in Greek, these are the elative use of, of words. It's extremely expensive, very expensive, these stones. And what's amazing is 12 of them are mentioned here, and I don't think it's an accident. And uh, I was looking around. I have my collection at home. I couldn't find them tonight. I have my Stones of Heaven collection because all these stones you can find on earth. And every time I go to Israel, I, I try and find a new one that I don't have yet. Most of them are too expensive to buy, but the cheaper ones I have. But basically, the colors of heaven are kind of a blood red and a very living green and a deep blue. And then there, there's a little bit of gold around there. It's kind of like the colors of the tabernacle God surrounds himself with eternally. But let me just go through this. Why does he mention these stones? Well, basically because starting in verse 19 when it talks about these stones of chapter 21, and I'm going to go through each of them, eight of them are in the breastplate of the high priest. So that's one reason why he names them, because it shows the correspondence with the Old Testament. Something else very fascinating. The 12 stones of heaven's foundations, in the order that they're listed in the Bible, are exactly opposite of the order of the 12 signs of the zodiac. You say, what, what, what's going on there? Well, it could be that God says, you know, the zodiac and all the star worshipers, uh, he says, are absolutely diametrically wrong in what they're doing. And so he flips them around. I don't know. That's just an interesting note that the 12 signs of the zodiac and all the astrological stuff. By the way, there is ancient wisdom in the zodiac, and the Hebrews, the Jews, saw in the 12 signs not uh, worship of, of the sun, moon, and stars, but they saw a message which, if you've ever studied it and follow old Hebrew lore, is actually a prophecy of Christ's coming. We believe that astrology and all of that is satanic today. But the ancients, if you remember, Job says, do you know the mysteries of the Pleiades and do you know Orion? And he talks about those pictures which were pictures pointing to Christ according to the ancient Jewish legends. But God flips them and they're, they're backward. But let me go through the stones, starting in verse 19. It says, The foundation of the wall of the city was adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. And jasper in antiquity, the designation jasper, was used for any opaque precious stone. The point of comparison is the brilliance and the sparkle of a gem. And the reference could even be to a colored diamond, having the radiance of a diamond. So this first foundation is jasper. But jasper then was a generic word for a dazzling, opaque gem. The second foundation is sapphire. Now, it's interesting. They didn't have sapphires in the ancient world. So this is just, we've brought that word into English. Actually, the word is the Old Testament word lapis lazuli. And we all know what that is. That's a very deep, dark blue stone that has flecks of gold. Now, let me show you this in the Old Testament because it, it ties together. Look at Exodus 24. Exodus 24. Genesis, Exodus 24. And I want to show you when, when uh, the children of Israel get to see the glory of God and the elders go up, the description. It says this, Exodus 24. Look at verse 9. Then Moses went up, and also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel. And look at this, verse 10. And they saw the God of Israel. 
And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. And that stone is the stone you can buy today. Not sapphires as blue gems, but the dark, rich, dark blue with gold flecks in it of lapis lazuli. And that's an amazing thing. Now back to, to Revelation. We see the deep blue stone as a pavement. I mean, it's a gemstone now, but it's the pavement under the feet of God as he sits on his throne. So, so far we have kind of a, a translucent or opaque precious stone. We have this dark blue lapis lazuli. The third one that's mentioned in verse 19 is uh, chalcedony. And this is a gem, and it is green in color. And so the third foundation is green. So we have something, a stone that, that could be any color. Then we have this dark blue. Now we have the green. Now we're back to green. The fourth foundation is emerald. And this is a bright green, transparent, precious stone. The ancients called the greatest of the green stones. So the fourth foundation is green. So we have two greens together. Then number five is onyx or sardonyx. This is a layered stone of red and white, and it was prized when they made cameos. You know, in a cameo, if you've ever noticed one, they're white on the surface, but as they dig down in the, into the stone, it's dark red, and that's what this sardonyx was like. And so this is kind of lines of red and white. And so it's amazing that you're looking at heaven, you're seeing greens, blues, reds, and then the white is the contrast. The sixth is carnelian, or sardis, and this is a deep blood red stone. And it was commonly used for engraving in ancient jewelry. The seventh foundation is this chrysolite stuff, or topaz. And this was a gold stone. It was a golden jasper or a yellow topaz. And so there's the colors coming out here of the tabernacle. The reds, the blues, the greens, the golds. Now, it's interesting, the tabernacle didn't have the green except in the high priest's breastplate. But God figures green in all the way through this new Jerusalem. The eighth foundation, it says in verse 20, was beryl. And this is a green stone that would range from a transparent sea color of green to an opaque blue-green. It kind of had many shades within the stone. Beryl, a beautiful stone. The ninth foundation is topaz. This is a greenish-yellow or a greenish-gold color. In ancient times, it was used for making seals, which you would put your name in with a seal ring or something you'd wear around your neck. The tenth foundation stone, which is also in verse 20, is chrysopras, and this is an apple green. It was a finely grained stone. It's a variety of quartz, and it's highly translucent. And so it's this green with, with light that comes through it. The eleventh stone would be more similar. This jacinth or jacinth stone is a bluish-purple stone, and that would be what we would call sapphire today. It would be a correspondent, and kind of like the blue flowers of spring, it's that color. And the last foundation stone, the twelfth one in the 20th verse there at the end, is amethyst, another variety of quartz, clear, transparent, purple or bluish violet. And it, it was used in the ancient world, this stone, uh, as an antidote for drunkenness. And so anybody that was an alcoholic, they would wear a amethyst uh, necklace. didn't work, but they'd wear it anyway. Heaven is also, if you look here, it says that in verse 16, it's not only beautiful, but verse 16 says it's huge. It's laid out as a square. Now listen, its length is as great as its breadth, and it says that its height are equal. So the length, the breadth, and the height are equal. And that's why I believe it's a cube 
for the Trinity of God, not a pyramid, because pagans always are associated with pyramids. Its uh, size, when, when Jesus said in John 14, in my Father's house are many dwellings, he wasn't exaggerating. 12,000 furlongs, which are mentioned here, a furlong was between 600 and 607 feet. 12,000 furlongs would be equivalent to around 1,380 or 1,400 miles. So let's just round it to 1,500, a cube 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles high would be 3.75 billion cubic miles. That's a big cube. At best, if there were 200 generations from Adam to present, and there probably weren't that many, but if there were, there would be enough room for everyone that's ever lived to be in heaven, although we know they won't all be there because God's told us that the vast majority of people have rejected him. But if you took every building that's ever been known to be built on this planet, I mean everything from the Pentagon to to the vehicle assembly building at, at Canaveral, to, to all the buildings in the ancient world, every building scientists have estimated could fit in a 750-square-mile cube. I mean, all of our skyscrapers, all of our apartments, all of our houses, all of our mobile homes, everything, all of our dog houses, everything we've ever built on this planet would fit in 750 cubic miles of space. This is 3.75 billion. So we're talking about just exponentially bigger than anything that we could comprehend. But heaven is home. It's not just beautiful. It's not just big. It's home. Look at verse 22. The Trinity is there. Our triune God. It says the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. At the end, it says the Spirit says come. And so we find God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all there. It's home for our triune God is there. The New Testament saints are there. It says verse 14 of chapter 21, the 12 apostles of the Lamb our foundation stones. So we're there, the New Testament saints. The Old Testament saints are there. Merged into one are all the people of God. As we saw this morning in Hebrews 13, 14, uh, they were looking for this city. And Revelation 21, 12 says, the great and high wall with the 12 gates are the 12 tribes. All together we come. As Hebrews 12, 22 says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable company of angels and the saints. What will we be doing? Revelation 15, 2 and Revelation 7, 9 tell us that we will be involved in worship. We will be singing. Revelation 15 says we will be priests to God. Revelation 7 tells us we'll be wearing white robes. Revelation 19 says we'll be wearing white wedding garments of righteousness. Revelation 22, 3 says we're going to be singing eternal praises. So if we could condense heaven into just a brief statement, it would be this. Heaven is a place of perfection. It's a place of perfect fellowship. It says in verse 1 of chapter 21. It's a place of perfect consolation in verse 4 as God wipes away the tears. It's a place of perfect life. In verse 4, there's no death. A place of perfect joy. Verse 4, because there's no sorrow or crying. It's a place of perfect health in verse 4 because there's no pain. It's a place of perfect supply, verse 6, because we have fountains of the water of life freely. It's a place of perfect worship, verse 22 of chapter 21, because the Lamb is the focus. It's a place of perfect light, because the Lamb is the light, in verse 23. It's a place of perfect security, in verse 25, because the gates will never be shut, because nothing will ever come in to defile. And finally, it's a place of perfect refreshment, 
There's no night there. We'll never have to rest. We'll never wear down. So when we come to the end, we find that Christ, not the Antichrist or Satan, will triumph. The church, not the world, will triumph. The divine way, not the dragon, will triumph. Truth, not error, will win. Right and not wrong will prevail. Light and not darkness will reign. We behold in this chapter the worship of the age-long plan of God, the record of salvation the Bible has conducted us on from the gates of eternity before time will end at the gate of eternity after this time. As God is all in all, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And so with those who are before us even now, as it says in Revelation 5, 13 and 14, unto him that sitteth on the throne and to the Lamb be the blessing and the honor and the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Why is all this? Because of one thing. Why will we go to heaven? For only one reason. Why will we get to see the splendor of the glory of God? For only one reason. Why will we be there forever? Just because of God's amazing grace. Let's bow before our gracious God and thank him. A great sinner once wrote some great words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Help these sin-blinded eyes, redeemed and made all brand new through your precious shed blood, Lord Jesus. Help us to see the wonders of your gracious home that you're preparing us. Oh, we long to worship you, O oh God. While we're here on earth, to the best of our ability, but someday, unrestrained, unfettered, with no frailty, no weakness, no pain, we shall sing of your great redemption. Father, help us to see your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, more clearly in the days ahead as we long for heaven where we will see you face to face. In your precious name we pray. Lord Jesus, the name that is above every name.